Hi there. Welcome to the Cold Turkey Podcast. I'm joined by Andrew this week. Um, yeah, I mean, like we, we've had a lot of talk about diversity, diversity of options for recovery, for sobriety. And, you know, like that's that's really something that I want to bring to the podcast. You know, like it's something that I not only discovered, but, you know, I got super curious about is, you know, like all about the different ways that can get that someone can get sober. And um, that's really something that interests me. And I think, you know, like you, you listeners are going to find interest in as well. Um I really want to take these times to um, reinforce and, you know, repeat that message that, you know, like we're here to help. We're here to listen. Um, whatever you're going through, if you know, like you're going through tough times, everyone is. But, you know, like especially if you feel lonely and if you feel that um, there, you know, like there's, you know, there's very little option for you to uh, vent out, you know, like all the shit you're going through. Um please reach out, you know, like you can reach out to our listeners, uh, to, to my, to my guests, sorry. Um, you can reach out to, to me. Um, there are many different ways, uh, at the podcast at, uh, podcastcoldturkey.com. There's like a special link for using Facebook, but you're going to find my Instagram where you can DM me and my Twitter. And, you know, like there, there are so many ways in my email, alex at podcastcoldturkey.com. And so, um, I don't want you to feel alone because um, you're not. And so um, whatever you're going through, um, it's going to pass. It's going to be okay. Um, and, you know, like uh, I know that people are going through tough times. So, um, yeah, I'm, you know, like that, you know, like me and, you know, like pretty much all my guests are here to listen to you. So, um, yeah, and, you know, like I, I hope you're, you're going to enjoy as I did. And so um, here's Andrew. Hey, Andrew, how are you doing? I'm doing well, doing well. Um, you know, like the, the, the first question I have for you is um, under the, those special circumstances, um, you know, like we're, we're hitting like that first year of like a full-blown fucked up situation, let's say it that way. <laughs> um, where are you located and how has been the pandemic for you? Oh, I'm in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. So it's been, uh, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, I think that it's like this relationship, you know, we all had our, um, our kind of coming to COVID moment. And my coming to COVID moment was, I was at the uh, International Drum Circle Facilitators Conference. And there were friends of mine that were from Hong Kong and from China and all over Asia. And they were talking about this thing and they were saying that their business had been affected. And I was like, really? Uh, yeah, I'm seeing this. And there was this part of me that was a little bit concerned, but not really that concerned. And then maybe three weeks later, you know, my uh, my basically my whole business changed, you know, my my way of life. So uh, a big part of my recovery has been music and that. Uh, part of my recovery translated into facilitating wellness programs with the drum. 
So um, we were facilitating one to five drum circles a day in 2019. And we went from doing that level of work to doing zero. Uh, so most of the work was in treatment facilities, in psychiatric uh, hospitals, in memory care, and retirement communities. And all of that basically dried up overnight. So all of those feelings of, man, I'm doing something good with my life. I'm giving back to community. I'm really involved and engaged. Uh, you know, the feelings that as a person that's in recovery, I really need uh, all dried up. And it was like, well, you know, what do I do now? Um, and who am I now? Actually, that came forward as well in my uh, relationship to this pandemic. So now fast forward. Uh, things have shifted, you know, a lot and, uh, I'm kind of in a comfortable space, you know, they're starting to open up doors for us. And, uh, I'm also native American. So we have, uh, our government has given some grants to, uh, the indigenous people to basically get them off of high risk areas where you have, you know, maybe three generations of families living in one house. So they've been removing um, populations like the younger people, maybe the, the ones that are in their 19 to 30 year old age and bringing them to Phoenix from the reservations around us. And uh, we've been able to do some work with them. In fact, I just booked a treatment facility for the Diné people, um, Navajo people. Um, and day after tomorrow, it'll be our first drum circle there. And I'll also be teaching some principles of self-identity, relational spirituality, and emotional intelligence, the, uh, the ideas and concepts in my book uh, that I've written about and how that relates to recovery as well. So yeah, it's been, um, you know, definitely kind of an up and down, uh, roller coaster ride of emotions. And currently I feel like I've flattened out a little bit, um, yeah. I'm not uh, standing in front of the refrigerator as much looking into the glowing light of doom. <laughs> yeah. And have you seen, have you seen either a decline or, um, you know, like change in, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm asking because, you know, like I, I've, I've witnessed here um, uh, really a sense of the stress in terms of, you know, like a mental health decline, right? You know, like either through relapses um, suicidal thoughts, even, um, you know, like I, I've seen, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, like some growth in, 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 in actually in mental health distress. And so I'm just wondering if you've, you've witnessed that as well, if you've seen or heard about that. Oh, you know what, Alex, it's like, I'm so grateful that this happened now, uh, for me anyway, because if this would have happened when I was still, utilizing uh heroin and cocaine to get through my depression uh you know i would have probably died just like so many people yeah uh, i have the tools now to deal with uh you know this issue or any kind of family issue uh spiritually and emotionally and you know yes it does rock me uh but i'm not turning to the substances for a solution like so many are and yeah you know the facebook groups that i'm involved in that are recovery based um last week there was like a major spike in ods you know and i'm talking about a noticeable spike wow. uh and then in the recovery groups that i'm facilitating just yesterday um 
when we were doing a drum circle, one of the members of our, of our circle, um, their sister had gotten murdered, you know, and, uh, he was dealing with that. And I was so grateful that he had an opportunity to, to connect in a, in a space of wellness to really give himself a space, you know, a, a release and a permission to emote some of that, to do something with those energies because, yeah, the toxicity of it can just become so heavy. And um, In a whether sense. it's depression, mental health, substance abuse, uh, suicides, overdoses, I mean, it's um, it was bad prior to the pandemic. And now there's not even a word for it. You can't call it an epidemic anymore. You can't call it a crisis anymore. I think those of us that are in recovery or in mental health are looking at it and just thinking, um, you know, I don't, I don't know exactly what to call this experience that's happening, but you're right. It's, it's a huge spike, uh, all over the place. And, and the question, you know, our, our kids, man, that are growing up, it's like, you know, in the United States, and I know you're, you know, where you're at, it's not necessarily as bad with the mass shootings, but, um, you know, here they've lived through God, just so much. And yeah. it's such a, in, you know, an intense environment that, uh, all of us that have these skills of being able to live substance abuse free, it's just such more, uh, more motivating to get out there and to have the deep conversations to talk about, yeah, you know what? I am feeling like shit right now, Yeah, you know, and I, I I'm feeling lonely, you know, I don't know what to do. You know, uh, it just really sucks. It's loneliness. And opening our hearts up like that, it, it just gives people a release because now they have permission to talk about it. And, and you know, like actually, Andrew, you know, like what worries me the most is there's actually two things, you know, like when will uh, authorities realize that um, one is outgrowing the other? You know, like that's one, you know, like big thing, you know, like so when will mental health crisis will outgrow the actual pandemic, you know, and that worries me a lot. The second thing is, you know, like what I think is the major cause of that is actually loneliness. You know, like I, I, I keep saying on that podcast that um, a Zoom meeting is not an actual um, in-person meeting. I, I, I have yet to find, you know, like the same energy and the same, um, you know, like the, the same vibe and, and, catching that same vibe on a zoom meeting that i do when i go uh, face to face with you know like other human beings um and i think that's probably one of the main um part of you know like what 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 makes it's funny because right now i'm reading a book about the kind of the genesis of <clears throat> the um the founders of AA and it's all about you know like how you know like the, the process they went through to write the big book and um, and one one thing that you know like you notice right away is how how much they they did utilize uh, each uh, each other's own one in uh, Akron Ohio and one in New York um, and the home was pretty much like the hub for if they found someone that was um, in desperate need of you know to quit drinking and quit using um, they would just use the house as a shelter. And, and and bring as many um, alcoholics in recovery to actually help that. And so the human contact was the main ingredient 
to make sure that you know like they, they would they would be on the fastest and and safest path to recovery um and let's not you know like kid ourselves that you know like a, a zoom meeting is actually um at par with um you know like getting together um it's it's not the same thing um and i'm 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 grateful as well that you know like i had a few years of recovery before that shit at, has hit us um because it, it you know like i i i I totally understand and empathize on the fact that it fragilizes us. Um, yeah, you know, like so. So that's why I'm asking the question because you know, like, not that I'm worried about my sobriety, sobriety, but you know, like, I, I totally empathize and understand that you know, like, for some people that are newcomers, and and I mean, that must be hell right now, just hell. Oh, yeah, you you hit it on the head, and you know, I also think that you're you're really speaking to one of my greatest reasons for relapse and that was loneliness um you know by the time i i came to getting the tools that i needed to um live a life uh without substance abuse uh it was gosh i think i had i had started going to um minor consumption alcohol diversion classes at 15 uh, because I would get caught drinking at school or at a park or something like that. And, uh, you know, by the time I was finally incarcerated, um, gosh, I think I'd gone through maybe, I would like to say three 30 day treatments and one 90 day treatment, uh, facility. And, you know, relapse was just, it was a part of my life. I would get these notions of, being able to uh, stay clean. And man, as soon as I started to feel lonely, uh, I just didn't know what to do with that. I had no ability to deal with my loneliness. And I would go out and use even 10 years in to my recovery. Um, I went through a divorce. And I was also a pastor at a church in a youth ministry. And because of my divorce, and I was working at a, a Christian newspaper, and I mean, really heavily involved in ministry work. And that divorce, of course, you know, there's people picking sides. Uh, I didn't feel comfortable at church anymore. I didn't know where to fit in. And I found myself driving around the drug neighborhoods uh, looking for somebody to hang out with. Uh, I didn't really have it in my mind that I was going to you know, get high in the forefront of my brain. Uh, but believe me, if somebody would have got in my car or I would have found the right person, uh, I would have been right back in the dope house. Uh, and I'm so grateful that I made my way to uh, Patina Wellness Center and Native American Connections. And I started going to Sweat Lodge and I started uh, talking in ceremony and participating in some of the the practices that have been a part of our indigenous community and our, our recovery uh, since the dawn of cultural identity. And because I had that sort of spiritual support system that I found at a desperate time in my life, um, you know, I was able to feel the void of loneliness, which, you know, there was a really powerful TEDx that I heard. And this person was talking about addiction and they were saying it was really easy for me to name all the things that the drugs and alcohol took. That was simple. But, you know, sitting down and asking myself what the drugs and alcohol gave me 
was the most challenging part of my recovery. And I feel like that is for any addict, any person that's in recovery, the most challenging part of this whole journey. Because once you come to that place of realizing that, you know, I'm a person that needs a judgment-free zone. You know, I need people that are going to accept me um, and are going to, you know, hang out with me. Uh, I have that need in my life. I need to be around people. You know, I, I need to be able to participate in an activity that's not just talking. And you know, even I introverts to, does, you know, like even introverts does, you know, like that's, that's the thing, you know, like even I'm, I'm, I consider myself like some, some kind of an introvert, some kind of, you know, like antisocial, but I need people, you know, like once in a while. And, you know, like <laughs> I realize m most probably more often than not. I need people around me. If it's not my wife, if it's not my kid, you know, like, I mean, it's some of my best friends. So even though I consider myself an introvert and an antisocial individual, um, human contact is one of the basic primary need in life, you know, as, as does food, sex, sleep, and others, you know, like, so for me, you know, like it's, it's, Even, even, even for me, it was a huge reality check, you know, like where I considered myself, you know, like the one that would rather sit in front of a documentary by myself on Netflix, you know, um, quite early in, in that confinement, I felt myself uh, just needing to be with some of my buddies and, you know, some of my, um, some of my closest friends and, you know. And, um, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, like even for people that consider themselves, um, almost recluse and, you know, um, you need human contact. And so, um, when that, that ingredient is missing from, from kind of your LT life habit, uh, diet, I mean, it's, it's, um, sure enough, you know, like something's going to break, you know, and, 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 I know that my listeners must be like, okay, Alex, I'm like, fuck the rent, you know, like, stop it. But, you know, like, for me, it just, it just, it scares me, you know, like, I, you know, because like, I keep hearing, like, even my sponsor, my sponsor, 79 years old, has been sober for 49 years. Um, and so he obviously helps, you know, like, has a ton of sponsees and helps a lot in the community. Uh, and we talk a lot, you know, like, multiple times weekly. And, Um, he was actually just telling me about, you know, like spikes and uh, a lot of uh, people in distress and people that are just crying for help, you know, and, and, um, and I, you know, like it, it, I guess, you know, like it's my, my empathetic, em empathetic fiber that, you know, like just um, screams that, you know, like it, it, you know, like it worries me. Um, And yeah, you know, like I don't, I don't want to spend the old, you know, like the old episode talking about that, but you know, like I, I'm going to keep hammering that nail, you know, like I'm, I'm just going to keep talking about this and I'm going to keep asking the question because I know that out there, there are people that must be listening to that, that, you know, like feels that, um, uh, either they're alone or, uh, but you know, like you're not, you know, like you, you know, like reach out, you know, like the, every one of my guests have opened, I've opened their doors and their ears to, um, to welcome, you know, any of your private messages to, you know, like to reach out for help. And, um, I myself has done this every single time. Um, you, you know, like write me a note, you know, like reach out and, you know, like I'm, I'm here as does all my guests who are here to help, you know, and, um, to be at least an attentive here to any kind of distress you're going through, you know? So, yeah.
you know, like that's pretty much my my little fifteen minutes of ranting around, you know, like the uh, how much I'm, I'm I'm getting worried about, you know, like us being just confined and, you know, because you know, like at least I have my wife and kid, but I can imagine someone that has none of that, you know, like I mean, fuck, you know, like that's that's way too much, you know, like that's that's way too much. And you know, the whole thing about the the Zoom is that it does become comforting. You know, at first you're like, holy shit, this is really lame. Uh, I don't feel the same as when I would be in a group of people. But I can tell you from participating in um, in groups that are based around recovery that I do, you know, at, especially at the beginning when it was really, you know, kind of touch and go. Those um, online groups were really a resource for me. And you know, I'm a person that has like that extreme, like I'm on the other side of it, right? I need to be around people all the time. Like I was doing one to five drum circles a day. So I was seeing anywhere from, you know, at minimum, uh, 15 people, you know, in a, in a day, a group I'm facilitating to a group of people to over a hundred people, you know, in one day, uh, in different communities and getting a pat on the back from most of them. And, you know, that kind of thank you thing. So, you know, I've never really considered myself an, an introvert in any sense of the term. So I could see how a person that has that sense of resilience and kind of like, oh, you know what, this really doesn't matter to me coming to that awakening moment. Right. I've, I've known this kind of part of myself, you know, like you could say that the introvert person would be like, oh, well, it really doesn't matter. And then it hits you like, holy shit, it does matter. You know, I really do need people. Um, you know, I'm not just comfortable sitting in front of Netflix watching a doc. Uh, and, you know, this is this really means something to me. So, you know, I'm really grateful that what you shared, you know, is I, I'm sure that so many people that are listening right now can relate to that process and have come to that, you know, that moment of, OK, this is going to be somewhat of a new norm. Yep. You know, um, that's the thing is that, you know, people think that we're going to go back to the way it was. We're not, you know, you're never going to really, I don't think you're ever going to see people taking planes without masks after COVID. I don't think you're going to see, you know, people on mass transit without masks. I think that there is going to be a shift in the way that people um, act. And the reason is, is because if you look at, you know, the countries that were hit by SARS, were hit by the bird flu, that were hit by other forms of, you know, kind of pandemic related airborne illnesses, uh, they, you know, have incorporated these kinds of things into their lifestyle. And we just really, you know, we need to mourn it. We need to mourn like, you know, how much of uh, our lifestyle we took for granted. Yep. And be comfortable with the passing of that in a certain sense and wake up to the reality of, uh, hey, you know what, I'm going to need to do whatever I can to meet my needs. Uh, and as a person that's in recovery, I'm going to meet my needs without the use of alcohol and drugs. You know, I'm not going to go back out on, a, uh, you know, spending a, a couple thousand bucks on Coke over the weekend because I'm, you know, I'm feeling lonely. You know, that just isn't going to work for me anywhere more. Um you know, let's get to the place where we start to evaluate, hey, I do have need for people. I do have need for filling this void of loneliness. And now what can I do? I use the drum, man. And, you know, the drum is like or music is such a powerful thing because 
you can touch each other with it, right? I mean, that sound wave is like giving you this vibrational hug. And holy shit, you know, it feels really good. And we can be six feet apart and we can be outside and we can drum together and we can have this kind of earth based ex uh, experience that uh, for me does fill that void. It gives me also a change in my uh, the way that my the electrons or the, you know, my my brain is firing the neuroplasticity and my mind changes when I play the drum. Um, you know, it opens me up to community. It, it helps me in so many different ways, uh, in my recovery. And, you know, thankfully I've been now 22 years and I'm not on antidepressants. I'm not on antipsychotics. And, you know, to give the listeners a little bit of the backstory. And that's where I was about, going, Andrew, you know, like I, I, yeah. let's, let's do that right now. Um, as I do pretty much every week, you know, like bring me back to those, you know, like those first memories, you know, like it's, you know, like most of the time it's either like the first time you touch any kind of, you know, like mind altering substance, or sometimes it's you being witness at young age of someone else doing it. And that has impacted you either in a, well, obviously in an influential way. So bring me back there. And you're know, like, at the same time, you're know, like, just Give me a bit of, you know, like a, a family picture background, you know, like, what, you know, like what does, you know, like kind of the family settings look like? Um, yeah. You know, like I, and then I, you know, like here, the spots, the spots on you, uh, my friend. All right. So first of all, you know, I'd really, because I am going to be talking about my family, I'd like to introduce the audience to them. And we have a traditional way in, um, my ancestry and my Apache lineage, my Native American lineage of introducing ourselves. So I'll go ahead and do that. So Dogate Andrew Yinishe, Adonai Nashinigi A Inde Nashe, Irish Bashachin, Inde Dashache, German Dashanali, Akote Go A Tashli A Portland, Oregon Inisha, Shema A Kathy Lindsay Woye, Shaza A Del Eckerwolde. So I am Andrew Ecker, my mother Kathy Lindsay, my father Dale Ecker. My mother's mother, Elva Gallegos, Apache woman from New Mexico. My father's mother, Evelyn Beatty, Irish woman from Pennsylvania. My mother's father, Leroy Lindsay, Apache man from Arkansas. My father's father, Wayne Ecker, German Algonquin from Pennsylvania. I have a daughter, Bailey, a son, Peyton, and a beautiful, beloved fiance, Monica. Uh, I was incarnated into this body in the land of the Multnomah, the Willamette, and the Clackamas in Portland, Oregon, although I reside here in the land of the Akmal Atom, the Peeposh, the Maricopa, the Inde people here in, in Phoenix, Arizona. And for me, right, I was born with an inheritance of trauma. Uh, you could say that, you know, some people are born with a silver spoon in their mouths. They say, well, if I had a spoon in my mouth, it was a heroin spoon. Uh, both my parents died of drug-related causes. They were both intravenous drug users. My mom uh, died of a cocaine overdose, and my father died of cirrhosis of the liver caused by hepatitis C. So, you know, early memories of witnessing somebody use, uh, I would have to say that, you know, one of the jobs that I had as a kid was cleaning the seeds out of the marijuana. You know, that was like my fun job to do. Um, getting a beer for my grandpa, getting, you know, a beer for my mom, my my you know, whatever boyfriend she had, whatever stepdad she, she brought uh, into the, you? the situation. Oh gosh, dude. I mean, early, early memories, you know, uh, and then shoplifting with my mom to support her cocaine habit. Uh, my mom was a professional and my dad, they were both professional shoplifters. 
And on the street, you know, that's called a booster here in the United States. It's kind of like, um, you know, there's a certain like Robin Hood kind of feel to it. Um, you know, I, I can tell you that like five, six years old, I mean, early as I can remember, we were out stealing um, four, maybe, I don't know. You know, I mean, I, I know I'm a little guy um, being, you know, around drug dealers, around prostitutes, you know, basically all the things you can imagine a kid growing up around that scene uh, would be exposed to, you know, being left at drug houses, um, being left at the park. You know, the, the first time that I can really cognitively say that addiction came into my life, uh, it definitely wasn't alcohol, marijuana, cocaine or heroin. Uh, my mom, we were out shoplifting all day. And she had brought me to a lot of dope houses uh, as a kid and even at this early age. But for whatever reason, she told me, I can't bring you to the place I'm going. I'm going to have to leave you at the park. And I was scared, Alex. You know, I was like, it was a cold day in Portland. It was rainy. Um, and she went to the Kentucky Fried Chicken and she bought me a bucket of chicken. And I remember holding that little that chicken in my arms, you know, in the cold weather and feeling the warmth of the chicken and eating chicken as she drove away um, and thinking to myself, you know, am I, is my mom going to come back for me? You know, is she going to come back? And that was really the first time I remember trading a substance for a relationship. And that's really kind of how I define um, addiction in my life is whenever I trade a substance for a relationship. Now, you know, <laughs> It, it started to spiral out of control, of course, later on in, in my life. And there was a number of experiences that really helped fortify that space of becoming comfortable being an addict, you know, becoming comfortable being a junkie. Um, all of those things in my life. You know, I remember we had uh, I lived through the Reagan era and Reagan was the uh, and Nixon. You know, these were the people who said we're going to have a war on drugs. Um, and this was of course, when the CIA was bringing cocaine into the, into the country. And in one hand, they were, they were basically bringing cocaine into low income neighborhoods. And in the other hand, they were locking people up for it. Uh, and they had this program called the dare program, which was drug abuse, resistance, and education. And this was armed police officers. <laughs> now I laugh when I say this because it just sounds so ridiculous armed police officers coming into schools, okay, low-income schools where the parents are using drugs, where family members are using alcohol, drugs, substance abuse is, you know, prevalent. I mean, we're talking, uh, you know, ghettos where these police officers are coming in and they're educating kids around this idea of just say no. Uh, and that was the whole, the whole thing. You know, we're going to intimidate you with armed police officers uh, in your neighborhood. And one of the things that they were doing was they were getting children to turn in their parents for smoking marijuana. So my mom, you know, being a person who was on cocaine and uh, was definitely against the system, uh, she drilled it into my head and she was like, you can't tell them what we're doing. They're going to interrogate you. And if they say anything to you and you tell them they're going to break up our family and you're going to be the reason why, you know, you're taken, you're going to be put in foster care. Your sister's going to be put in foster care, you know, all of these things. So when the dare cops came into my school, uh, my heart started beating, 
you know, my hands started sweating and I thought for sure they were going to interrogate me. I thought for sure that they were going to, um, take me into some dark room and, you know, who knows what, um, torture me. I didn't know, you know, there was all kinds of things that were in my mind. Uh, but they didn't interrogate me, but what they did tell us was they told us that if you have one drug addict parent, you're 50% more likely to become a drug addict. Now I can look at that as an adult and I can say, Oh, they were trying to educate us. You know, they were trying to say that there's genetic patterns and addiction and all the things that I know as a person that works in recovery now, yet as a child, I thought, Oh, that's what I am. You know, my dad's an addict. My mom's an addict. That must be me. And I remember feeling this sensation of, you know, doom kind of fall on me because I had never had anybody tell me up to that point that I was genetically flawed. Um, I didn't know that I had like some kind of something wrong with me. I didn't know that there was, um, you know, some reason, scientific reason why I was going to be, you know, a drug addict, but that's what I agreed. I agreed, uh, that that's who I was. Now it took until I was 15, um, which was, you know, a few years later, uh, to really start to show those behaviors. And I started drinking, I started smoking marijuana. And then, um, you know, by the time I was 19 years old, I was using heroin with my dad. Uh, it was a pretty, you know, um, pretty quick kind of, uh, descent into, uh, homelessness, crack cocaine addiction and intravenous drug use. Uh, you know, I remember bringing a, you know, they, they used to call it a quarter. I sound like one of the old guys when I was a kid, you know, like, uh, say, you know, they used to, in the seventies and stuff, they used to buy, you know, a bag of weed was a lid. And I remember hearing this from these old time, you know, junkies like, Oh, that's how I used to buy weed. But when I was a kid, you know, uh, we used to sell a quarter ounce and, uh, I was bringing a quarter ounce to my dad and he told me, he was like, son, you're going to, to prison. And I was like, you know, F you dad, you know, what do you mean I'm going to prison? And he's like, no, you like the fast money and you like the, you know, the drugs and everything. He's like, just promise me you won't get involved in the gangs. You won't do drugs. You won't gamble. You'll be very careful who you lend to and also who you borrow from. And he said, if you do that, you'll survive. He's like, promise me. And it was like, Alex, it was like a bricklayer teaching, you know, his son how to lay bricks. You know, it was one of those survival things that he was teaching me. My dad had a gang name. Um, you know, he was very well known and very well respected in kind of the underground criminal activity that was going on in the little vadio where I lived. So it was very easy for me to get involved in that stuff. You know, I remember getting, you know, the first pat on the back by the drug dealer and feeling like I had really done something like I was a man now. Um, and working with my crew, you know, the people that I was working with selling drugs, it was a real feeling of accomplishment. Uh, subsequently, you know, I ended up getting arrested for selling LSD and mushrooms and a bag of marijuana. Um, I never sold heroin or cocaine because I had seen what it had done to so many people. Uh, but I sold a lot of ecstasy. I sold a lot of LSD. I sold a lot of mushrooms and a lot of marijuana to support my heroin and cocaine habit. 
um, primarily. And also, you know, in the, in the latter parts of my addiction, I was shoplifting, you know, what my parents had done. So yeah, man, if that kind of explains the, the beginning of, you know, the story, um, you know, I, like I said, I, I ended up in prison. I ended up on the same prison yard that my dead father died. You know, he died at, uh, you know, he, well, he was in that prison yard before he died. I visited him there as a little kid, uh, which was a trip because it was like the whole cycle of addiction manifesting. Uh, and then when I did my federal time, so I did state prison time in that prison yard, which was called Fort Grant. And then I did my federal time in a prison camp on the air force base, uh, where my mom was born, uh, cause her dad was a career military and she was born on an air force base in Las Vegas. So it was like both sides of my family there. There was this like metaphor, you know, of, uh, addiction and what addiction gets you. It gets you, you know, institutions and death. We all know that. Um, and that was when I woke up and I also started reading. I started participating in, church. I started fasting. I wrote a book. I read a book called, uh, we're all doing, we're all doing time by Bo Lozoff. And it was distributed by the prison ashram society. And this was the first time I ever took a conscious breath and did yoga, uh, and meditated while I was in prison because I grew up really feeling insecure about my home uh, situation. You know, I was bounced around from family member to family member. I dealt with post-traumatic stress and depression and all of this you know, really detrimental mental illness that I was basically trying to survive through with the use of heroin. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was, uh, I started to develop some skills while I was in there, you know, uh, by reading, I was so afraid when I was growing up that, uh, you know, I never read a book. I never had time to read a book. I never really felt comfortable enough to read a book. And when I was in prison, I felt safe, which sounds really, you know, kind of strange for a lot of people, but it was the first time in my life that I knew I was going to have a home. Uh, you know, I had been bounced around all over the place, family member to family member. And I had that home insecurity in my life. And, uh, it felt really good to know that I was going to have a house that I could, uh, I could live in. And when I did my state time, it was like a coming home. You know, everybody knew me from the neighborhood. Uh, people in there were, it was like, yeah, I, you know, I had friends in there and everything. And um, it was really easy for me to get involved in the the politics and all of that stuff that go on in prisons. And when I got my federal charge, which, you know, happened at the same time, I basically went from state, never left custody, went into federal custody. Uh, that was when I made that real powerful decision to seek uh, a relationship with God for real. You know, I had tried recovery. I'd tried AA. I'd tried all of these things and none of it worked. And I really believe it was because I didn't have, I guess, the depth of cognitive behavioral modification that came with 500 hours of really solid drug rehabilitation that they gave me while I was in the federal prison system. Um, the state system and the county jail system, they don't really have a reason to rehabilitate you because they're paid by the federal government for the amount of prisoners that they house. So it's a revolving door in the, in the jail system, in the state prison system. 
But if you can make it to the federal level, at least in the United States, then you are eligible for things like RDAP, which is the Residential Drug Abuse uh, Program. And that's what I went through. And that was really a part of my recovery, deep part of my recovery, along with uh, prayer, meditation, um, you know, speaking my truth. I remember sharing my testimony in the jail prison, uh, you know, chapel. And uh, yeah, it was a really powerful experience for me while I was in there. And when I got out, I went directly into ministry. Uh, I started going to 12-step programs as well when I got out and just doing my best to to stay on that path of recovery. I got married, um, was doing really well, and then went through a divorce. And that's when that, you know, that time of uh, uncertainty came into my life, that loneliness 10 years into my recovery. And uh, I had found my way back to more of the traditional uh, ways of, of spirituality inside of what it means to be native and <clears throat> you you talked about your sister what was the sibling situation like and how did themselves coped with the situation you know like because you know like sometimes you know like there's there's a few questions that pops into mind um one is you know like what was the um you know like uh, you know, brothers and sisters situation you know like and and how did they cope with that and the other thing is you know like um And, you know, like I probably have my answer, but, you know, like a relation in general with authority must have been just, um, you know, like a shit show because, you know, like, you, you, you know, like the, your parents were probably influencing you and, in, you know, like a bit of, you know, uh, F the system and, you know, like, a, a, you know, almost anarchist at heart. Oh, for sure, man. You know, my sister, it was pretty, she was really young uh, when... So when I was in the fifth grade, my house got raided. My mom got put in prison. She got beat up in front of me by the police. Um, I was dealing with post-traumatic stress from, you know, being left at drug houses, from sexual abuse, all those things. But that really solidified uh, a lot of my childhood trauma, watching her get beat up in front of me. Uh, it was a really, really heavy experience. You know, this is basically like what you see on, you know, the cops TV shows where they bust the door open, uh, with a battering ram, you know, uh, it seems like a thousand police are in your house all in a second and they all got guns drawn on you. Um, you know, my Spanish speaking native American grandma was being thrown around. My mom was being handcuffed and beat up in front of me. It was just a real, it was a nightmare. And that kind of, um, basically a couple, like within a month of that happening, my grandmother died, um, probably due to the stress of that situation and, and taking care of me and my sister without my mom there. Uh, so now, you know, I don't, I have a choice. Where do I go? Where does my sister go? I was sent to a family member, my grandparents on my dad's side in Phoenix, Arizona, My sister was sent to live with my mother's brother and she stayed in one family the entire, her, basically her entire childhood. She was only, I think five at the time. Um, so she was still really young and, uh, she didn't get bounced back and forth from family member to family member. You know, I had like, I think 
five schools in the eighth grade uh, and two states and three different family members, uh, something like that, you know, in my eighth grade year, which was a really challenging year for me. It was a really rough experience, right? You know, right before I went into high school. And she was given that, you know, real kind of uh, attention that a person needs that's uh, dealing with, you know, um, having parents that are addicted to drugs. She was given opportunity that I didn't experience. And, you know, my mental illness as a child was definitely a lot uh, further along than hers. Um, you know, I was dealing with like, Perimeter checks, waking up in the middle of the night and walking around my house, uh, sleeping with a knife, um, you know, behaviors that uh, just are typical uh, post-traumatic stress, you know, in children, going to the bathroom on myself, uh, things that were just really uh, so challenging. Like when I talk about them, it's like I feel such a, a, a love for that little boy that just had like such, res you know, resilience. And you know, like you said, the, the feeling of authority by the time I was, uh, selling LSD, I really kind of thought the United States system was Goliath. I was, I was David, you know, the Bible story, David and Goliath. Yep. And the stone in my sling was LSD. You know, it was like a weapon to get back at the system. I was trying to bring people out of the system with psychedelics, trying to activate them. And I was using a lot of psychedelics myself too. Um, you know, going through a lot of ego death. I mean, I don't, I don't know anybody that has, you know, done the level of LSD and, and psychedelics that I've done that hasn't basically seen themselves in two lights, either as the lowliest kind of person in the world and also God all at the same time, you know, within a 30 second kind of span of thoughts on those substances. Uh, and yeah, I, I definitely have experienced that. I was, you know, involved in the Arizona rave scene, the underground party scene. I was so well known that I would go into raves uh and the djs would kind of shout out to me you know from the dj booth uh, i was living quite the life uh you know selling big quantities of substance and then doing a lot of of heroin you know and women and money and the whole deal uh it was uh pretty extreme you know and it all kind of came crashing down when the federal government got a hold of me. Do you remember um, kind of, you know, like the first seeds and, um, the, you know, like the first seeds of you pretty much waking up either hungover or, you know, like in situation where you just think to yourself, that can't be life. You know, like even though your most profound, inspiring characters, you know, like, where, you know, like, and, but, but I guess at the same time, like either you thought that you would die young or you would just realize, um, kind of thinking, you know, like that can't be life, you know, like either by watching people around you or, you know, like, I don't know, you know, like whatever ends you got out of life, you know, like, was there any early thoughts of, you know, like that, that shit can't be it. You know, I felt like, um, for me, I felt very comfortable in my 
reality of being a drug dealer, of being a drug user. Um, I really didn't have a lot of regrets. Like I remember, you know, I had this one friend of mine who kind of grew up in the church and stuff. And his family was a pretty, you know, they were a great family. His mom was always there for him. Uh, his dad was always there. You know, on the outside, I'd look at this kid and I'd think, man, what the, you know, what are you doing doing heroin? You know, you don't have an excuse to do heroin. And that was like most of the people that I got eye with. Uh, and he was one of these guys that he would draw up that, you know, his, he, he'd get high. And then as soon as he pulled the needle out of his arm, he was talking about how he regretted it. And how he just thought it was such a, you know, such a horrible thing to do. And I remember thinking to myself, like, damn, this dude can't even enjoy his high. You know, he has like so many regrets. And I would tell him, you know, just shut up, dude. Like, you know, chill out. Like, what's wrong with you? And um, he just felt it. You know, he felt like there was more to life. Me, on the other hand, I was the person that you know, my friends called up when they, when they had a friend who was overdosing, when, you know, uh, they needed to ask a question about this ecstasy pill, if it was, if it had more MDMA in it or more speed in it or whatever, you know, I found myself finding my identity in the substance abuse and in the undergrounds and in the parties. Um, I just was very, very comfortable there. I do remember, one moment where, you know, and this is kind of my bottom of the barrel moment. I was, I had just woken up and this is after, um, my connection had gotten busted. They, I was on the run and I was involved in this, um, clandestine operation, clandestine laboratories operation that was set up by the DEA, uh, to infiltrate the rave scene. And because my connection was, um, they had kind of, I guess, done more surveillance on him than they had on me. Um, they apprehended him first. So when he got apprehended, when he got busted, I was like, oh shit, now I need to go on the run. So I was on the run for about a month. And this is like the worst thing that could happen to a person that has, you know, a $300 a day, you know, sometimes $1,000 a day cocaine and heroin habit. Um, it was like, I, I was doing everything that I possibly could to maintain my habit. And I was waking up in the morning, sometimes dope sick. And I remember being at the gas station and pumping gas into my car and throwing up, you know, like literally trying to function to do the basic operating skills of a human being, which is filling my gas tank and just like vomiting all over the place. Cause I'm so dope sick and thinking to myself, you know, this is, this is horrible. Like I don't, you know, I don't want to live anymore. I just want to die. You know, I'm, I, I don't know, like I've never been this dope sick before. I've never been this, you know, bad. Uh, and by that time I was already shoplifting. I was already out you know, stealing and, um, just selling bunk acid, you know, which is like horrible, uh, selling, you know, bottles of liquid LSD to people that weren't real. Uh, I was pretty much at the bottom of, uh, you know, my, my run. Um, so to like, you know, share with you my 
horrible, there has to be more to life moment, that would have to be it. When I was running and I was making money and I was on top of the world, there wasn't anything in the world that you could tell me that would, uh, you know, that would have brought me out of that. Like oh. I, I thought that that was the best thing in life. Exactly. And you know, like when, when, when you're feeling being the eye roller, you know, like that's, that's pretty much not, you know, like it's pretty much you're, when you're throwing up your guts that those, <laughs> those thoughts cross your mind, you know, like it's obviously not when you're blinging and, you know, flashing cash and, you know, like being the, you know, like, um, the, the prime time event of the evening you know <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it's pretty much but, but we used to call it the dude bra ex- you know exactly I was, I was the dude bra i was a, you know everybody's connection you know people wanted to be around me i had that feeling of self-worth i really wasn't good at much in my life you know i never had an opportunity to play in sports i never had you know coaches giving me a pat on the back i never really was that academic Although I did graduate high school uh, because I was intelligent enough to, to pass tests. That was the only reason that I graduated high school was because I could listen to the teachers and process the information enough to graduate, you know, to pass the tests. And if I didn't pass the test, I would just go to summer school and summer school was basically you just paid them and they would they would pass you uh, the credit, you know. Uh, so in the majority of the time when I paid for summer school, I was paying for summer school with drug money, uh, you know, money that I had made hustling and yeah. So it was, um, you know, my whole self identity was really wrapped up in it, Alex. Like this is like, you know, it's ingrained into the culture of my family. My aunt is using meth. My dad's on crack and heroin. My mom's using, you know, it was just like, it was a cultural um, kind of dynamic for me. And you want to be up to the legacy, right? You know, like there's almost like a, there must be some kind of, you know, like taking, um, you know, like taking over that legacy of, you know, like the, you know, like whatever, um, you want to be up to the reputation of that name almost. Right. Uh, yeah, I would say that there's a part of that, but you know, also there's more of, um, just, I'm good at it. You know, it was just something that I was really good at. I was really good at selling drugs. I was really good at making relationships, networking, um, putting together deals and feeling comfortable around, you know, people pulling out automatic weapons and being around, you know, thousands of dollars passing through hands. Um, you know, I think about like high pressure sales. When I got out of prison, there wasn't a lot of opportunities for me for work. So I went into bill collections. You know, a friend of mine was, um, working in a call center and it was like, everybody was talking about how pressure, how much pressure there was and everything. And I was like, this is nothing, you know, (laughs) like I'm used to sitting around in rooms with, you know, people with automatic weapons. Like, I don't, I, I really like, this is not like me meeting my quota or selling is nothing to me. I don't feel any pressure here. And I did really well at it. You know, I like rose, there was like 200 people in our company. I was in the top 10 consistently uh, and then, you know, went into sales and then marketing and promotions and got into ministry, uh, right after that and started working for the Christian newspaper because I wanted something that would fulfill my life. 
And uh, yeah, it's just, um, you know, it's all been basically wanting to give back ever since then. You know, I kind of needed that collections job to get my probation officer off my back. And once I was able to do that, I had to be on probation for five years. Uh, And, you know, once I kind of got them off my back and I started to be able to do things that were more entrepreneurial, like working for the newspaper. And that, again, that was another networking thing. You know, I was putting together events. I was working in Christian music. I was around kind of the same scene that I was involved in, except there wasn't drugs. You know, there wasn't alcohol involved in it. Um, And that was like a big turning point for me when, you know, I kind of lost that whole uh, world of Christianity uh, in my recovery because of my divorce. It was, man, that was so, that was such a tough time for me. Um, and now, you know, fast forward now I've, I've been, um, doing the coaching work. Now I work in personal and business development, really around some simple principles of self-identity, relational spirituality, and emotional intelligence. I wrote the book, The Sacred Seven, which is based on the traditional introduction of my Apache ancestors and how that relates to optimal living, uh, how, you know, building the building blocks of self-identity can create opportunity for us if we begin to understand, you know, how are we supposed to show up as earthlings? You know, is my medicine enough? You know, your medicine, whatever it may be, you know, the fact that you've lived through the depression, you've lived through the suicidal thoughts, you've lived through the addiction. This is enough. This is how we're going to mend the cycle of life. We're going to mend the circle and get people activated and engaged with one another again. And all of these principles are a part of my book, which I would love to give to the audience for free. Uh, they can get a free copy of my book at thesacred7.com. Uh, you just sign up for my, cost you an email and uh, I'll send you a free PDF copy of the book. And you can also get connected with me there uh, for, you know, a free guidance, a 30 minute session. See if, you know, these other technologies that I've created around this system of self-identity and spirituality um, can be applied to your life. I developed a course. It's like a six and a half hour course on self-identity. Uh, and as, yeah, it's helped me, you know, um, be the person that I am today. I've been able to be a keynote for some of the largest mental health conferences in the United States. I've worked with six different native American tribes doing suicide prevention, recovery, self-identity, leadership development, uh, four different native American nonprofits. Um, yeah, countless corporations and hospitals, you know, even Bain Consulting, which is a $4.3 billion consulting firm, you know, all of that, right? You know, I, I know, I remember doing some of these leadership development and uh, corporate team building events. And it's not like you come out and you say to this, these groups, you know, hey, I'm the son of two junkies. You know, it doesn't come across that often, you know, that I get an opportunity to share all of the, that I've shared with your listeners. Uh, but there's this part of me in the back of my head that thinks, wow, you know, I'm like a rainbow unicorn, man. You know, you don't, um, come across, uh, people like me very often. You know, most of the people that I know that have had one drug addict intravenous drug use parent, you know, deal with, uh, a lot of issues most of their life. And the majority of them are still on substances, you know, let alone two. 
um, drug addict parents. So I'm just very fortunate, man. You know, I think I'm a miracle, just like all of the listeners that are in recovery. And uh, I'm just really here to spread that message of self-identity, you know, transforming uh, the idea of the stereotypes of what the culture believes you to be, what your family believes you to be, what even you believe yourself to be. Uh, you know, like I said, I was just so comfortable in that idea of being a drug addict that I could have died there um, if it wasn't for the spiritual awakening and the process that I've I've gone through in my life and my ancestors as well, holding on to the principles of ancestral understanding and what it means to be an earthling. You know, I feel like the sacred seven and sitting with that, you know, listening to the elders introduce themselves in ceremony, listening to them call on their ancestors, call on the place in which they're born and the place in which they reside. That whole dynamic was such a huge shift in me and such a powerful um, vehicle of transformation that I want to give that to others. You know, I want other people to enjoy that process. And, you know, can you elaborate on that? You know, I kind of um, bring me to, because um, you talked about drumming, you talk a lot about, you know, like the, the, the origins and, you know, like the First Nation and all that. Um, can, you, can you elaborate on, have you found like either like, um, kind of a first nation based uh, recovery system or is it like an ancestral um, ceremonial process that you've incorporated into your recovery you know like you know like I, I, I'm I'm wondering you know like uh, you know like I'm super curious about you know I like kind of you know like if you elaborate on that whole thing because I I I, I would love to see kind of the relation between recovery and um kind of you know like some some of the um traditional um you know, ceremonies that come from 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 the, the 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 your ancestors so for me right the the idea of the natural law you know the natural order of things that i am a child that i am a grandchild that i am connected to the earth Right. These are principles that for some reason in our contemporary culture have we've alienated ourselves from. You go on a hike in the wilderness and it's like, you know, don't go off the trail. You're supposed to be this like, you know, captivated person, even in Mother Nature. And we really are earthlings. You know, we are members of this earth and we all are indigenous to this planet. And that idea of being a child, being a grandchild, it sounds so simplistic, but yet it fills the void of what are you going to be when you grow up? You know, I was in a, um, a schoolroom filled with kids that, you know, were dreaming of being a astronauts and being, you know, uh, doctors and lawyers and being police officers. And when the D.A.R.E. program came into my school and said I was genetically flawed and that I was supposed to be a drug addict, you know, I just made this agreement that that's what I was. And that became so comfortable for me. It became a way of life. It became a culture for me that finding myself hooked on heroin and realizing that, you know, this is a shit way of living. 
was really a, a challenge for me. You know, there was so many cycles of going back to those patterns. I had to have that transformational experience in prison where I really hit my knees and I started asking the bigger questions. You know, what am I? Who am I? You know, what what is life like without these parameters of substance abuse and without this culture of addiction and crime and all of the things that were uh, so inherent in my existence? It wasn't until, you know, 10 years ago um, that I really came to be able to answer that strongly when I found the traditions of my Apache ancestors. I still carried that void. You know, who am I? What am I? You know, what what am I without the drugs? What am I without the crime? What am I without all of these things? And I found little kind of uh, remedies for it in church and in 12 step and all of these things. You know, I'm an addict. Hi, my name is Andrew and I'm an addict. Hi, my name is Andrew and I'm grateful in recovery today. Hi, my name is Andrew and I'm a child, born again, child of God. You know, all of these things were creations that I had. I had allowed myself to believe and they were behavior based. You know, it's a behavior to be a child of God. It's a behavior to be an addict. It's a behavior to be in recovery. All of these things are are based around my behaviors. Yep. And when I heard this simple approach to to becoming a child and announcing that to the world, announcing that I'm the son of Andrew or I'm the, I'm the, I'm, my name is Andrew and I'm the son of Kathy and Dale. And I'm the grandson of Elva and Evelyn and Wayne and Leroy, you know, looking at that and being in that place of resting in that, that space, you know, resting into the moment of being a child. It was so fulfilling for me, Alex. It was like, oh, okay. I don't have to be all these behaviors. I don't have to be an entrepreneur. I don't have to be uh, an author. I don't have to be a keynote, a course creator, all these things. I can just be this. And from that kind of comfort, right, I w- I'm able now to grow into my spirituality. I'm able to reach out and have a foundation that's fortified into the earth, into my relationship with the air, the water, the fire, you know. Um, the earth herself, like all of these very powerful esoteric and spiritual concepts of life, there's a fortified energetic architecture of a foundation that is a part of so many indigenous communities, like all over the world, people introduce themselves. The Maori in uh, New Zealand, they introduce their lineage, their parents, their grandparents, and the mountain and the river where they live. You know, Jesus, when he came into the temple, he introduced himself, you know, from his ancestral lineage. It's just in our contemporary culture, you know, of being jobs, right? When did this come into our minds? You know, and you look back at the European experience where only certain privileged individuals were able to be a landlord. And they were the only ones that were able to have a land based identity. Everybody else was a smith, a parson, a knight, you know, a farmer, a sower. And why do so many European people have last names that are associated with a job? Because of this, like, idea that's been woven into our consciousness that we're not enough being a child of the earth. We're not enough being a grandchild of the earth. And for me, 
remembering the process that I wrote in the book, The Sacred Seven, and then utilizing it, you know, going out to the mountain, Alex, going to the ocean, going to the river and sharing my introduction, sharing my ancestral introduction with, you know, the wild places that just feels so empowering. And then also when I speak, you know, sharing my ancestors, when I go and do uh, any kind of uh, ceremonial experience now, um, I share my ancestral lineage. And, you know, what's so funny is that I'll go to a spiritual conference or something like that. They'll ask me to be a speaker and people will come up to me and they'll say, you know, hi, my name is Jenny and I'm, you know, an incarnated Native American or I'm from the the Pallades. I'm an alien and or I'm, I'm an angelic being or something like that before they tell me the name of their grandma, you know, and it's like, okay, that's great. You know, I, I, I'm not discounting that you're an, an alien or whatever, but also, you know, what's the real, you know, what's real about you? You know, how can we connect together? Where were you born? You know, where was your mom born? Where was your grandma born? You know, and that's why inside of the indigenous, like spiritual system of my ancestry, like these things are important. You know, this is what makes you a human being. It's what makes you an earthling. You know, it's taught to children before the idea of God, you know, before the idea of spirituality, they're taught a solid understanding of who they are. And when I come across natives that know how to introduce themselves, that are that know the, these native ways and these traditions, they're the ones that are living these optimal lives. It's the natives that have their families have gone through the boarding schools that have gone through the atrocities of the genocide that are struggling with addiction, just like my family. You know, my family never really had an opportunity to unpack the genocide, to unpack the mission system, to unpack the, the boarding schools, the all of the genocidal stuff that was going on in our lives. You know, why we had to hide, why we had to run, you know, all of the things that have gone on in North America and South America and all over, you know, these lands. So for me, it's like, it's such a important realization. And I feel so passionate about helping people remember this. You know, it's not like the, the sacred seven is necessarily a new concept. It's a very old concept. And when people experience the process, it, it feels like something has been, uh, awoken and remembered within the fabric of their DNA. Wow. That's, and where does the drumming fit into that? Oh man. So, you know, I first, you know, talking about the LSD and the raves and the underground. So I started, um, I had been in Peoria, Arizona, living in this little vadio. um, which was like more of a, uh, Mexican American, native American, Spanish speaking area. And my mom lived in Portland, Oregon, which there was kind of a, a larger counterculture movement, you know, people growing dreadlocks, um, living out in the woods, you know, organic lifestyle, that kind of thing. And this is right around 95. So I get invited, uh, this kid with dreadlocks feeds me a mushroom and invites me to this drum circle thing on top of a mountain in Portland where my mom's family, my actual, you know, native American family had transplanted from New Mexico to, 
So I'm up there and I'm listening to these drums and I'm seeing people dance and sing. And it's like, what is this? Um, and then I started playing the drum and, you know, I can say now that it was, um, it was a part of therapy for me because so many things in my life were out of control. My mom was on drugs. My dad was on drugs. I was addicted to drugs. I couldn't control all of these things. But when I hit the drum, there was this thing like, oh, wow, I can control something. You know, I can, I can make a sound on this drum. And that kind of subconscious thing for a person that's dealing with post-traumatic stress, it was so empowering. It was like, wow, this is healing to me. Like I'm able to experience something. And then, you know, that along with substances, I, uh, you know, I was taking a lot of psychedelics and I started playing drumming and, you know, I would go to these drum circles. I would experience, you know, uh, out of body experiences. I would experience interdimensional beings, um, all kinds of different things were going on, you know, cause of course I was taking a lot of psychedelics, um, and it was loosening me up from the trauma. You know, I was starting to like in a way, um, in really a very accidental way, I was utilizing some of the techniques that have been a part of indigenous communities, which are the use of plant medicines and drumming, singing, and dancing. Now, you know, if you look at my life, where I'm at in my relationship to the drum and, you know, my, this is like over 20 years ago, right. Uh, that I first came to the drum now for the past, I think it's been about 12 years. I've been facilitating drum circles in homeless shelters in community settings. And I've gotten trained in an evidence-based healing modality called health rhythms, which was developed by a psycho neuroimmunologist and a music therapist, uh, has shown both psychological, uh, psychosocial and biological outcomes, including reduced stress, increased immunity, lower blood pressure. So this really gives me the language to speak to the hospitals about this ancestral medicine. Um, you know, if I have any kind of if I'm a witness of anything, Alex, it's that these ancient remedies of, you know, healing the mind, the use of the drum, the use of dance, the use of song, um, and the ideas of fortifying self-identity, these ancient wisdoms that are ingrained into every society around the world. You know, if you, we all, if you traced our DNA back far enough, there would be a time in our collective ancestral history when your ancestor, my ancestor sat around the fire and maybe the only medicine was drumming, singing, and dancing. And, you know, most likely you would go to a, some sort of practitioner and instead of saying, well, you know, what's your temperature and give me your blood or your poo or your pee. The first question that that medical practitioner would ask for is, you know, when was the last time you drummed? When was the last time you danced? When was the last time you sang a song? Can you introduce yourself to me? Do you know who you are? And if you didn't answer that, it wasn't just your responsibility. It was the entire village's responsibility. Let's all get together and have a ceremony for Alex because Alex is feeling depressed. You know, let's teach Alex how to introduce himself. Oh, Alex doesn't have a mom. Alex doesn't have a dad. Well, you know what? This person is going to be Alex's mom. This person is going to be Alex's dad. And these are going to be Alex's grandparents. So Alex can introduce themselves in a good way. You know, this is the way that we conducted ourselves. You know, we have way more history doing things like this than we have in this fragmented, distorted uh, reality that we're currently navigating that is obviously not working for us, right? 
We have the highest level of drug addiction ever recorded in history, the highest level of suicide, the highest more people incarcerated than ever before in the history of the world. And it's absolutely broken. And that's why these institutions throw their doors open when we go in with the drum, because we do what they can't. You know, there's so many times that I'll come in and set a drum down. Me and my my beloved, my, you know, my fiance, my wife will, she'll come in and she'll put the drum in front of a person and the nurses will come over and say, oh no, she won't play, you know? And we'll say, well, just, let's just keep the drum there and see what happens. So, you know, sure enough, that person's head goes from, you know, being down and drooling to their head picking up. And then next thing you know, they're, you know, they're tapping on the drum, on the drum like this. And next thing you know, they're singing a song because that's the brilliance of this medicine. It it's responsive to us on some kind of energetic genetic level. Uh, and it's so liberating, man. It's, uh, it's the reason why, you know, I feel I'm here. That's, that's, uh, that's great. You know, like one, one of the thing that, you know, like I want, um, my listeners to hear is absolutely, you know, like it, it's one of my mission to actually, um, present all of the ways that people have found their path to sobriety. You know, like the, the, um, there's, there's absolutely one thing that, you know, like I ate is, uh, closeness of mind, you know, like not opening your mind to, um, other methods, you know, like other ways that people find, uh, serenity, um, that find peace into their lives and most of all sobriety. Um, and so, um, I love that you shared, um, other ways and, and even I would say complementary ways to, you know, like what has worked for people, you know, like you can, you can add that as, as people does for psychology, psychiatry, um, psychiatry, um, you know, like all of these things are, you know, like complementary or the foundation of your, of your own path to sobriety. And, you know, like that, this is, this is super important for me. And, you know, like I'm, I'm honored and grateful that you did share, um, your method and your way of handling, um, your, your, your own abstinence and your own sobriety. And, you know, like that's, that's really something for me. So thank you. Um, this is, um, yeah, I mean, like for me, it's just, um, it is important for people to understand that, you know, there's not just one way of doing things, that there's not just um, one path to success, um, that not only that, but, you know, like that there are tens and hundreds of thousands of people that actually are um, doing it their way and it works and it's okay, you know, um, you know, again, you know, coming back to the book that I'm reading right now, um, you know, like one thing that one of the founders of AA was, you know, like absolutely sticking to his guns about was, do you have the desire to quit? And if you do, whatever happens from there, you're welcome. You know, like in, in, in you know, like, you know, like, and obviously it was, you know, like the, the, the creation of the 12 steps, but you know, like for him, it was actually recommendation of his own way of, you know, like, um, 
getting sober. So when almost a hundred years later, some people are just like fucking rigid about this, you know, like you, you need to go back to the roots of it all and understand that, you know, like all that guy was asking was one question. Uh, you know, do you have the, you know, like the, the desire to stop? And if you do, you're welcome in. And that's it, mm. you know? And so for me, you know, like uh, reading that book is high opening and, and just, um, you know, like pretty much a revelation for me because, you know, like I've always thought that, you know, like the, um, we need to be absolutely flexible and while how we welcome people and while i'm super um um worried you know like maybe maybe that's a strong word for it but you know like i i do get worried about you know like um some of the more more traditional methods um having a hard time embracing that digital world you know like you don't see much of a a on Instagram and much of AA on Snapchat and NA on, you know, TikTok and whatever, uh, where, you know, like our, 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 the next generation are not going to pick the newspaper and look at the class ads of for, you know, like an AA ad in there. You know, they'd be looking at TikTok for inspiration. They'd be looking um, at Instagram for, for um, you know, like to, to get influence. Um and so while this worries me a bit because, you know, like it has actually saved my life and it still does. Um, I love the fact that, you know, like someone like you and some of my other guests have just um, found different ways uh, for their path to sobriety. Um, and it's, it's uh, again, you know, like it's, it's both inspiring for me as it is for my listeners. And, you know, like uh, it's, it's I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful for that. No, well, thanks, man. And I, you know, I feel like whatever works for you is great. You know, if it's going to 12-step meetings every day to stay clean, go to 12-step meetings every day to stay clean. If it's going to church, if it's going to mosque, uh, you know, temple, whatever it, it may be for you, sweat lodge, you know, that's, uh, it's all good. You know, the life of, of um, sovereignty and freedom is one that I feel is inherent in the design of, you know, the universe, like the creator wants us to be sovereign, wants us to have this ability to have freedom from, you know, that which would captivate us. And, you know, substance abuse is a captivity that I hope everyone is able to navigate their way out of. I know, unfortunately, that um, for some, the only release that they have and the only way they have out is death. And that's unfortunate. Yeah. Um, you know, and, but it is a sad reality. You know, it's something that those of us that have been in recovery long enough, we know that people die, you know, they die with a needle in their arm, with a bottle in their hand and they die in institutions. Um, I hope that the listeners here will give themselves the permission slip to, to think about the expanse of, of, exhausting every option before they put that needle in their arm or before they pick up that pipe or that bottle, you know, exhaust everything that you can exhaust before you go back to that. And keep an you know, open it, mind, you know, like keep an open mind. And, you oh, know, like if, sure. if, if you stay as creative as you are a drug addict, you know, like because we're fucking geniuses when it comes to finding our next it, right. Um, you know, like we're, we're so creative, you know, 
And so if you keep that creative um, mindset it, into sobriety and into abstinence, I mean, the world's at your feet, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so keep an open mind, look at, you know, like there, there are inspiring people all around us, um, such as you, such as so many others that have been guests to my, to my, to my podcast that, you know, like you, you know, like there's, there's very, it's my, my, my son right now is, you know, going through, I would say tough times, you know, and, um, but you know, how old is he? He's 23, you know, so. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mine's 25. Yeah. And, um, Mm -hmm. and so, but at the same times there's, um, there's, there's part of my brain that's, well, I've, you know, like I've made myself an, a mission not to be an enabler. So, you know, like we're, we're, you know, like there's zero contact between us, you know, because I'm, I'm the asshole right now and I get it. You know, like I'm, you know, I would probably be calling myself a dick as well. You know, like, so, um, (laughs) but at the same time, um, he has very little excuses for continuing on that path. And so while, you know, like I need to kind of be in peace with, you know, like the, you know, like, as you said, you know, like the worst can happen to people that are still going active on, on their addictions. Um, you know, like it has to be one of the option that could, you know, like that of his destiny. Um, at the same time, you know, like I'm, I'm ready for it. You know, like where I, whenever he reaches out and has that desire to stop, you know, like I, you know, like there's so many resources that I can either refer him to because I don't think that I'm the right individual as his dad to help him. Um, but, you know, like if, if my, you know, like if the portion of help that I can bring is to actually refer him to people that can definitely help him. So um, for me, it's just like, um, you know, like for people that are still using and people that are f- trying to find a way, there's millions of ways, you know. So, so if you, you know, like if you, if you, if you have the desire to quit, um, you know, like I would be hard pressed to, um, be challenged about, you know, like I, I can't find my, you know, like I, you know, like I can't find my, my, you know, like my, my way or my method invent one, you know, <laughs> you know, like just, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. and, and I don't want to be like a, an asshole about it. You know, like I, it's not about, <clears throat> I've been there, you know, like I, you know, like I stopped at 23 for God's sake, you know, like, and I was stubborn as fuck. And, you know, like it, it wasn't until, you know, like I broke my teeth at the bottom of that fucking barrel that I decided to stop, you know, like, and, and my Mm, father was, you know, like my father was just, um, open-minded enough, you know, because there was not an ounce of addiction in my dad, you know, like, even though, you know, like I could, yeah, I, I, I could challenge, um, history about you know, like his work addiction um or other you know like different you know like uh you know like defects of character that he has but you know like you know like he didn't know about whatever i was going through um but he was open-minded enough to just say would you go to the therapy center and um, i guess humble enough as well you know because he knew that he couldn't help me with that um and I just kept an open mind and, you know, like I, I, you know, like relating to the, you know, like the steps where, you know, like the first is actually just, um, 
truly admitting that you're powerless over that, you know, like those, those substances, I guess sitting in that minivan next to my dad, you know, like I did, I went through my first step right there on the spot and just said, whatever, whatever, whatever you, the fuck you're recommending me, I'm going to take because, you know, like I've tried everything switching from brown alcohol to, you know, like transparent alcohol and transferring from beer to, you know, and then to weed and this and that, you know, like I've tried everything and, you know, just couldn't find, um, I couldn't do it myself, you know? Um, and yeah, you know, like finding a sense of community, finding an ear that's going to listen to, you know, like you're, you're, you're renting and, you know, like, and, you know, like all the shit you're going through and, um, I think it's key to, you know, like a successful uh, recovery and, um, and then, you know, like you, you, you listen to people and you read about it and there's, there's as many ways to, to recover that there are individual on this planet. So, you know, like there's, there's very little excuses for people around, especially us that's been gone through, you know, like that tough path of recovery, because we're not saying it's simple. Um, and sometimes, you know, like I, I feel like I'm, I, I sound so opin opinionated about this. It's not about that. It's just that, you know, like I realized that, you know, like, um, you know, like if, if drumming's, if praying's your thing, pray, you know, like if drumming's your thing, drum, you know, like if dancing's your thing, you know, like I've heard about, you know, like, um, therapies in the U S that are just almost exclusively based on music. Well, if music is your thing, you know, like find it, you know, like, yeah, I mean, like for me, you know, like, um, I'm, you know, like I've come to that conclusion that, you know, like it, it becomes, um, kind of, you know, like a bit of admitting that you need help and, and there are help, there is help out there big time, big time, you know, so for sure, man, for sure. <laughs> that's like, that's totally it. And the, I think that you really, for me, when I think about the one kind of variable that I've needed in my life to keep my recovery the way that it is, it's definitely without a shadow of a doubt, it's my relationship to community. You know, without that and having people that I can hang out with that are, um, that I can be authentic to, you know, with, uh, and not have to hide behind like any kind of facade or anything like that. Um, and be comfortable around and give myself permission, regardless of if they judge me or not really to be myself. That's more than anything. Uh, the equation that has, uh, helped me find the right community. And as long as I'm in community, cause I've done the ecstatic dance experiences, you know, where you go and dance for three hours without any alcohol or drugs. And it's a group of adults, um, you know, and that's a major, like, God, it just feels so freeing. Uh, the drum circle, you know, is another place that I find that sense of sovereignty and also sharing and giving back to other addicts you know, people that are in recovery, I feel out of all the work that I've been able to do with my, you know, with our company's drumming sounds and with sacred seven and wellness sourcing, uh, working with addicts, uh, is it's just so rewarding to me. I just feel so much love and, um, I feel so good about that kind of work. And fortunately, you know, I've been able to do that and I don't have a college education. I don't have a bunch of letters behind my name. I don't have anything like that. I just 
love the drum and have seen that the drum has transformed my recovery. You know, so just like what you're saying, man, if it's drawing, if it's praying, if it's, you know, dancing, if it's music, start teaching people that that are in recovery. And next thing you know, you'll have a wellness program. You'll have, you know, a path to substance, to being free from substance abuse. And that's what's so beautiful about the world that we live in. You know, um, I feel like the legacy of AA is that peer support works. You know, if anything else, the, you know, underneath everything else, there's that kind of message that a peer support model can help people in recovery. And that's a beautiful thing because before that happened, um, you know, it was medical intervention and most likely it was you, you know, going into some psychiatric hospital or a prison or a lobotomy. I mean, they were doing these things, you know, back in the day Yep. when, uh, you know, when, uh, Bill W and, you know, the doctor and all, you know, they were, when they were going through this, this is what they were doing. Uh, so give thanks, you know, for the road to recovery that AA has established and also all these other awesome forms of peer-based support that are out there. Yep. And so, um, before, uh, we, we close this off, um, any, you know, links you want to share and, you know, like for our listeners, you know, like every link that, you know, like, uh, Andrew's going to mention, uh, you can find in the description of the episodes below. If, you know, if you just scroll down in whatever podcast application you're listening that to, um, any links you want to share with our listeners? Yeah, man. Uh, the sacred seven is where most of it happens. You know, you can get connected with my YouTube channel there, my Facebook page, um, you can get a free copy of my book. Also, if they're in the States, uh, I haven't figured out how to do this in Canada yet. Uh, but we, for every signed copy of my book that I sell through my website, uh, I will send a copy into a prison uh, or a drug rehab. We work primarily with the state of Arizona, the Arizona Department of Corrections, and we'll send copies of my book in there. Uh, so if they purchase a signed copy of my book through my website, I send another copy into uh, the jail or the prisons that we work with. And you can get information on my course there. Uh, also, if you want to check out the work that we do at the drum or you have an upcoming event that you would like us to drum at, uh, that business is Drumming Sounds. And that's just drummingsounds.com. And yeah, man, I would love to get in contact with people, you know, and talk recovery and talk spirituality uh, if you need some help, guidance, kind of um, some other alternative ways of looking at self-identity, emotional intelligence, and relational spirituality, please connect with me. I love people and I love uh, being of service. That's phenomenal. Um, and again, you know, like for the listeners, you know, like um, Andrew is going to provide me with all of these links and, you know, like you're going to be able to uh, to actually reach out to, uh, to Andrew. So, um, Andrew... Thanks a lot, sir. You know, I could, it was, uh, you know, like we spoke right before the holidays, uh, you know, like about, you know, like that, that, that recording and, you know, like, and, uh, I was, I was super curious to get there, you know, like I, I couldn't wait for it to, um, to happen, you know, like only because, you know, like there, there's really something about, uh, you know, like there's really something about the diversity of how we can get better and how we can actually save our ass, you know, like, and so there's, um, Again, you know, like I, I sound like I repeat myself, but you know, like um, reach out, you know, like um, get in touch with people, and you know, like uh, Andrew is, you know, like is giving us, you know, like another option for, you know, like for getting better and finding kind of um, 
path to life. And you know, like, I love this. I love this. And so for that, I thank you, Andrew, for your presence here. And, uh, you know, like, um, I wish you the best, sir. And, you know, like, I, I'm, I'm super happy that we've, we've met. Thanks, man. And let me know if there's ever another opportunity for me to come back on. I would, I would really like to. I'd love to. So, so you'll hear about me for sure. All right. Awesome. Take care. Thanks a lot. Thank you.